HMI bringing this podcast to you today. Ah, Rugby for Heroes, a not-for-profit organisation who organise fundraising events to raise money for military charities. They've been going for over 10 years now and in that time they've raised in excess of £100,000, which is amazing. They're an organisation formed predominantly of, um, not predominantly, they are formed entirely of keen rugby players and beer drinkers, drinkers from Old Lemontonians Rugby Football Club up there in Leamington Spa. My good friend Michael Valance is one of those people who founded the organisation and uh, they do one or two events a year. Uh, the next event is in... Oh, it's October. October? Yeah, October. I get my dates mixed up all the time at the moment. Anyway, the next event's in, in October. It's fully booked out. A, uh, it's, a, it's a fundraising dinner. The last event was a beer and gin festival back in May. Uh, loads of money raised, loads of fun had, and the, uh, the, the, the benefactors for the next event in October are Team Rubicon UK and 353. So if you want to find out more about Rugby for Heroes or, or um, donate to them or maybe come along to one of their events, which would be best because I'm always at them and other podcast guests are always there supporting Mike and Rugby for Heroes, then you can follow Rugby number four heroes on social media rugby for heroes on social media or you can go to the website which is rugbyforheroes.org rugby f-o-r heroes.org thank you to mike and his merry band of fundraising men and ladies who are involved uh, also bringing this podcast to you today are westway nissan the uk's largest nissan dealership and a nissan dealership headed by ex-military gentleman and friend of mine called Tony Lewis, also a previous podcast guest, and he's a veteran, served with the Queen's Regiment. Um, Westway give up to a 20% discount for serving personnel and veterans when you want to go and get a new vehicle from them. They do private vehicles, do commercial vehicles, they do uh, purchase, and they do leasing. They've got options of leasing there, which is superb. Uh, they've always got offers on, so get onto their website, Westway Nissan uk to take a look, or better still, get into one of the dealerships and uh, and tie in with one of the one of the uh, the sales reps. There, they're fantastic people, and they're always keen to help out service personnel and veterans where they can. So westwaynissan.co.uk um, or westwaynissan on social media. They also like to try and employ veterans where they can. So if you're if you're looking for work, it is well worth getting onto Westway and making an inquiry. Make the point you're there that you're a veteran and they will uh, they will help you out where they can. Uh, again another incentive driven by by Tony Lewis there, the MD. Thank you to Westway Nissan. Lastly bringing this podcast to you today are Team Rubicon UK, a disaster response charity of which I'm a part of, many other podcast guests are a part of and a disaster response charity formed predominantly of ex-military volunteers. There are also civilians involved in it, which is a most welcome thing. The more, the more skills and experience and breadth of skills and scope of skills and experience you can get in an organisation, the more capable that organisation is. They respond to disasters both in the UK, such as the f- massive floods that have hit various parts of the north over the last couple of months, but also overseas, most recently deploying uh, to the to Cyclone Edai's impact on the east coast of Africa and Team Rubicon UK deployed to Mozambique uh, impacting positively helping over 177,000 people survive get back on with their lives in, uh, there in, in, in the, in the centre of uh, Mozambique which is a truly remarkable achievement considering how small the organisation is 
in terms of teams that are deploying the ground and the actual numbers that they have to, to be able to deploy, but also uh, how little funding they receive. They don't get any government funding. They rely entirely on the good naturedness of the general public. So if you're able to donate to enable them to continue doing good work both in the UK and overseas and helping people get on with their lives in the wake of disaster, then go to teamrubiconuk.org forward slash donate. That is it. It is not it. Um, Nico Voljoin, my good friend, uh, South African lad who, who served with three para uh, in the noughties and, um, and served with uh, various uh, security services in, in South Africa and in the private security. Basically, he spent his entire life putting his life on the line to look after other people, protect other people. He has unfortunately contracted a, a rare form of uh, skin cancer. Um, he's got a crowdfunding campaign going on. He needs a, a lot of money. He needs like a million rand to keep the the um, treatment going. The, tr- the treatment he needs to get that gives him the best chance of survival is only available in Sheba Medical Center, which is a medical center in Israel. He lives in Flipping, South Africa. Uh, it needs funding to be able to enable the treatment, which has started, and it's having positive impacts, but it needs to keep going in order to increase his chances of survival. Um, if you go to charliecharlie1.com forward slash Nico, N-I-C-O, then that will redirect you automatically to his fundraising campaign that his fiance has set up. The reason I've not given you the, the link to the fundraising campaign is because it's a massive long website address that would take me about 20 minutes to read out in here and you wouldn't remember it anyway. So go to charliecharlie1.com forward slash Nico, it will redirect you. Please do so. And if, you're, if you've already, donate, already donated, thank you, thank you very much. I know I know podcast guests have been doing that and it's I really appreciate it and Nico and his family really appreciate it um, if you have already donated then go go back to the link anyway and please please give it give it a share on social media that is it onto the podcast uh, my guest today is Rob Langdon Rob Langdon is a former Royal uh, a former Australian soldier with a one one RAR one Royal Australian Regiment and we left and went to private security in Afghanistan uh, he killed uh, an Afghani national uh, in in a, in a set of circumstances uh, where he claimed he was it was in self-defense and uh, it was and it was unfortunately cl- claimed otherwise and he ended up spending seven years in a, in, a not- in a notorious Afghani prison facing a death sentence he obviously lived to the tell the tale and this is the tale. Uh, he's also written a book about it called The Seventh Circle. So I looked that up once you listen to the podcast. The podcast, the audio isn't great. We recorded it in his home in South Africa, in his living room, and living rooms are, are generally aren't aren't designed in, with acoustics in mind. However, I've cleaned it up as much as I can. It's also maybe better for you to watch this one on YouTube as opposed to listen, because obviously it's easier to understand what's being said. If you were looking at the person as he's saying it, you can see the lips move. I don't know. My hearing's shite, so I had to watch it on YouTube. Uh, you may not have to. I hope it's fine. Hey, shower with Rob Langdon. Cheers, man. Mate, cheers for the fastball. Mm. Um, no and uh, give we give Gaz Sunita Skill a quick shout for the introduction. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of the weird things, huh? Yeah. So, mate. Um. So, 
Australian Defence Force one hour. Yeah. Got out. Yeah. Went to security. Yeah. Afghan. Iraq for a long time, from pretty much when it first really got was really interesting, like early early days. Um, sort of, I got over there in two thousand and four for that, and it was good. Um, it's now I don't think it's ever going to be that good again, money wise and work wise. I mean, there's so many jobs around. It was it was good fun, different jobs, and uh, yeah. After that, I just got jack of it, and, and like. I don't know if you spent much time in Iraq, but um, sort of that 2007, towards the end of 2007, I was getting pretty mad. So, um, yeah, it was, everyone was getting a bit, I just wanted something different. Can you come a bit closer? Yeah. <clears throat> oh, yeah, well, mate, you got it different. You ended up in fucking prison for seven Yeah, well, I, I went out, I went, I, I sort of was kicking around here for a, a couple of years and then I was just started looking for a bit of work. And um, I wanted to go to Afghan just for something different. And I hooked up with this bunch over there who were a bit loose, to say, to put it mildly. Yeah. It was sort of one of the start, it was sort of around the time they really started pushing local companies to be, or everyone was sort of local, but you know what I mean, um, really pushing it. And this company I went and worked for was mixed up with the host nation trucking, which is one of the biggest fucking rorts ever so basically what they were doing was instead of using their US military's logistics system they were using a mixture of boats to Pakistan and then trucks everywhere in Afghanistan yeah and so you can imagine the amount of shit that ended up in the black market um basically the deal was was to put a bit of the the money back into the local economy so they took it's basically how it worked a load turns up in Pakistan, by ship, connex of whatever, Humvee parts, gets trucked on the back of a truck, goes up to the border, gets transferred to another truck, and he gets to dock it of a local driver. Then he drives it to where it has to go, usually to Bagram first, and then from there. But they also did ones where they flew into Bagram, got loaded there, mainly the mail, and then it got taken out to all the various swabs for the Yanks. So they get their dock it, they drop their load off. It, cool, it sits in the cooling yard for 24 hours so it doesn't go bang. And then he gets his load, hands it in, gives them the docket, they give him money. That's how it's supposed to work in theory. Didn't quite work like that all the time. Um, and basically, a bunch of security companies started getting started up, um, basically, to run, to protect these guys. And the majority of them were locals. Now there was a there was one bunch over there running around over there, and they were they were using all Afghanis, and they and they were um, they were actually doing the stuff for the MOD, for the British military, do the same sort of thing. But they got they they were using Gurkhas to to basically run the the um, crews on the ground. It was as bad. Um, <laughs> it was there was one bunch they one type convoy hundred trucks over 100 trucks and I come through the next day and there was just burnout wrecks everywhere I counted probably 30 odd before I just stopped and I was still in the process of recovery and funnily enough the um, in the Russian-Afghan war they ambushed a, a Russian convoy and in the same spot exact same spot and obliterated them so this is probably the kids 
the guys who did the original mm. kit. And, that, and that's how, how it works over there. I mean, I, I've got this weird relationship with Afghanistan. I still miss the places. Nuts. Um, but, you know, after that, after seeing that one, I was sort of open my eyes a bit. And I'm going, okay, we'll change the way we're doing things. But anyway, so I'm working for this company. And it was a mixture of people. There was a lot of Macedonians there which, who were shit. Um, there was, when I got there, there was a bunch of pretenders. There was guys, there was a guy there who was American, black American guy, who was a sniper in the Marines in the British Army. Okay. Yeah. So, and then, and then we had another <laughs> guy. Yeah, well, well, yeah. And, and then he, and then you'd sort of be picking him and, you, and he'd be tripping over himself. Um, there was another guy that they hired. I, I met him when he was working for another company, but then they hired him and I just said, yeah, no. Nah. Because this this dude, he was British as well, and he reckoned he'd been with three two battalion in the um, in the South African Defence Force, and uh, if he'd done that, he would have been about three. <laughs> he couldn't speak any Afrikaans or Portuguese, which three two guys all did. Um, yeah, there was actually no Englishman there. there hardly any Englishman there. They're all Afrikaans or whites in that, that particular unit. So you know, there, there was that that happening and. and that, that is my thing with the security industry. There is a, a lot of pretenders out there. I, 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 I'm not SF. I, I've never done that much, I don't think. I'm ex-recon guy. That's about it. And, yeah. But there's other people out there who think they need to bolster their CV a bit to get a job. I don't know. It's really oh, it's cut through and through. Yeah, unfortunately, you got it. What, what kind of year are we talking? No. This was uh, this is all around 2008. Okay. Because Iraq, you know, after Iraq, it was so... First, the first couple of years were good because there was not much going. But we had to have a card, we have a weapons cards and stuff. That's okay. But we had all the toys, especially the crew I was working for, had everything, and um, you could sort of get away with doing a few things as long as you didn't, you weren't too obtuse. <laughs> you could, you could um, have some fun. But um, yeah, Afghanistan, Wild West, mate. It was just mm. nuts. It was absolutely nuts. And then you just drive around town. There was no green zone. There was none of that. Was how, how more people didn't get smacked into in, in Kabul back then is beyond me. It's, um, it's the, yeah, we had the same. I mean, when I did private security, I worked in Iraq. I did four mm. years and I was in, I was in like Ramallah area, Bakshi. Mm. But the same problem started happening there where cost cut in, well, different reasons, cost cut in. You yeah. ended up with uh, less than quality people on the contract. I, yeah, on occasion, and some you get some bluffers, but then also that problem of bringing in the local nationals, man. Yeah. You know, we, um, but unfortunately, you've got to do it. That's the thing, to a degree, especially working. No, what say? You got to bring in. You got to bring in the locals sometimes. And oh yeah, absolutely. But it's it's man when you when you're cutting about with six or seven of you know in a, in a team of I don't know seven or eight of you, and there's only one expat. Yeah, you know what I mean. Well, you're gonna like my next little thing. So Afghanistan. <laughs> And the boss of the company, the owner of the company, was ex-SF sergeant, American guy, Greenbrae, uh, weapons sergeant. So he was all about cars and guns. He yeah. was also he'd also been smashed up pretty badly during over there, but one of his trips over there. So, and the two I see the company or one of the VPs, every, everyone was a VP, was sort of fucking annoying because you couldn't get much done. You know, everyone wanted their little fight and uh, just work. You know. Um, I worked with a couple of these guys and, and I just said there's no fucking way no one I'm going out the road and they're going to get me fucking killed I'd rather work by myself 
and um, they put me up with a pretty good driver, Slant Turbo, the Cesaro dude. That was the one guy I worked with the entire time after that. And um, eventually, after a few misses, we come across this bunch of guys, these passion dudes. They're basically, they're probably ripping our shit off at one point. They were working for a, um, we did a, a run, it was actually when they were building Bastion. And we were running stuff over there. And was this was in the 2008 when no one was moving through um, through the provinces because it was just too fucking hot. So um, they must be expanding Bastion then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we, we were trying to get all this stuff over there. We, 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 the convoy was actually, was over 100 trucks. And, and some of them were going to a marine fog they were putting out in the middle of the Red Desert. And the rest of them were dropping off in Bastion on the way. So we are sort of heading out that way. We went through Helmand and all that very entertaining trip. Um, when we got down to um, sort of south of Garzing, we were just getting smacked. And it was literally out for three days. We just got hit. It was like Mad Max. It was fucking nuts. Lost. I think we ended up losing about 12, 12 security guys. I can't remember how many drivers and shit. But um, yeah, it was just, we're running ammo. We basically had to go fucking raid. The cops would be all hiding in their fucking We're just going in and take their fucking ammo off, off again. It was that bad. And we eventually got over there and got it all sorted out. And this one point on the way back, we come across these guys who are looking after this um, camp of road construction guys. And they're all past turn. And one of them knew the boss from when the, the war first started, when he first went in. Well, he was uh, 10th group, so it was well, actually not that early. Would have been probably 2003 or four when he went. So... You know, so this young guy knows him and he ends up working for me. And so I had this crew of, and they worked directly for me. I paid them um, through the company, of course, but I, I paid them myself because I, I figured that would increase my longevity on the road, you know. And I led by example, which is something that most people don't actually get. They didn't have body armour, so I didn't wear body armour. I dressed like them sometimes. Would depend on what we're doing. I did. I did. A couple, I used to do it all the time. Then I got shot at too many times by Americans. So, like, you know, if I was working anywhere near the Yanks, I'd carry an M4 and dress like I was one of them. But if I was uh, out on my own with the, do- the dudes, it was okay and long shirt and shit. So, um, yeah. And I drive back by myself. I've, I've done the Kandahar run, just me and my driver at night. You don't get shot. No, we've hit a few roadblocks that way and it always gets a bit interesting but yeah that's alright and uh, yeah but I did that for a year and I was getting a bit being going out for, on your own like that for a couple of weeks at a time <laughs> you get a bit you get a bit uh, antsy so yeah towards the end it was getting a bit rough and uh, we had a there was another bunch of dudes who worked for the company well they were According to them, they ran the company. One of them was a warlord who was uh, married to Sharma Sood's sister. So the Panchiri dude. And everyone has this opinion of the Panchiris are the saviors of Afghanistan against the Russians. Blah, fucking blah. They're just a bunch of drug dealer warlords like the rest of them. They're, they're no different. If anything, they saw an opening. And if you talk to any older Russian guys you come across them they, they'll tell you they, they pretty much had a deal with them so they could run opium out of the place through Kazakhstan because Panchir, the Panchir is in the north and all that stuff. so what these guys were doing because they worked out because essentially these convoys are under military protection you can't touch them 
and you, especially when the Yanks are their mail. If they got mail, you, you shoot people because it's the mail, and if they look like they're going to steal the mail, can't steal the mail. So it's the United Postal Service. So you, <laughs> you're more worried about the mail than they were the fuel and the ammunition. You know, it's mm. fucking bizarre, but that's the Yanks work. Um, what they used to do is a convoy rock out, say ten trucks, and it'd get shot at pretty early. Like just when you get out, get out of town, out of the city limits or something, they get shot at, and they'd go to the whatever expats for them because they had some dudes that were all right. They had other ones that weren't. There was they had no guys that had no fucking business being over there. There's some guy, redneck from fucking one of the southern states, who was like a, a reserve sheriff or some shit. Why are you running convoys? And he, he, he's doing shit like muzzling fucking the locals and smashing their radios when they're playing their music in the cars while they're driving. That's not really how you win hearts and minds. It just doesn't work like that. He never really done much outside of wherever he was from. But anyway, so they get shot up, and the the big brave Afghan security guys go, "It's not safe. You need to go back." We'll, don't worry about it we'll take care of it and so he'd go back and then what they'd do is add their trucks to the convoy and now no one can touch them police can't search them military can't search them and they can take whatever they want to wherever they want because it's essentially under military protection yeah so what they were doing this this warlord yeah he had a mate who was in the NDS the secret police which are essentially all panchery anyway um who was uh, the duty signed off on all the weapons in in the UN um, uh, destruction thing that the plant had set up in um, Jalalabad? So all these weapons are captured. They go up there, get destroyed. He signs off on them. They don't get destroyed. They just come back out again. They run them down south. And swap them with the opium farmers for drugs. They come back up using that. Plus all the normal shit of steel and stuff, steel and fucking fuel. They used to weld. Um, troughs in the back of the, the fuel tankers so, and the Yanks couldn't work it out they, <laughs> like, every every fuel thing no matter what we do we put seals on every, we lose 10% and um, my driver took me to where they welded up the fuel tankers and they weld, welded it on sections but they put a trough in the bottom so you drain you can drain that thing bone dry but in the in the bottom of it there's this little sump clicks that's the Afghan tax work. <laughs> oh, we can't so we, we take 10% it's just how it is so, you know, little scams like that. And, um, yeah, so I used to, I was being a, a little bit OCD, like most guys who were being in support company too long now. Um, I'd count on my trucks. What's this? That's for the, for the US military. I'm pretty sure they don't need firewood. Why is there a truck loaded with firewood here? Why, you know? And you pick it up and there'd be something under it, either guns or drugs or whatever, so get rid of it. They try and smuggle that through with, yeah. the, with the military convoy. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and they just couldn't really do much about me. And I, and I sort of put a bit of... My, and my guys only answered to me. So, yeah, that worked really well. And the Pashtun... Usually you got to... If, with the Pashtun dudes that... I found out, this is much later, um, majority of the Taliban are Pashtun. So they tend... Someone knows somebody's cousin, brother, and they can sort of know what's going on on the road, which is, okay, what are we doing? Are we, I want to be moving now. Is it okay to move down there? Mm, maybe give it a day. All right. So sit back. And they, they, hit big, they hit the Yanks or whatever, and 
then we go down the next day because they're running ammo. But you know, it, it's that sort of that sort of element that, that sort of that makes it really handy, um, and it worked in my favour much later. So um, I was doing that every time we got a nice stoush. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just drive off. I'd hammer the shit out of them. We got, I got one big one, which was just bullshit. Um, and I was by myself. <laughs> Went on for four hours. And, like, uh, and the Yanks had to get me out of that one. I don't think I would have come out of that. But it's, I've, it had some fairly interesting drone footage of the whole thing. So, um, that was over two drivers. The, the Macedonians ring me up and went on sort of chilling out, waiting for it to get dark. So I only moved at night. You don't get shot at. And I had night, my own night vision and all that shit from Iraq. So I was just run at night. Um, yeah, so they wanted to move these two trucks. I'm going, why? I was like, wait, no, we've got to move them now. But why? They're empty. Just wait till it gets dark. I'll bring them back tonight. No, no, they've got to come now. So we drive down there and we got hammered. And um, the truck drivers, after I briefed them, not to jump out of their trucks and run away and hide. I said, look, if we get hit, just keep driving. Unless you're disabled, just go. And we'll just deal with it and catch up there. So they stop their trucks and get out, jump out and run away. Um, we found one body without a head a bit later on. And there was no blood around, so I don't know if he, they grabbed him and hacked his head off or it was someone else, I don't, I don't know. But we took the body back anyway. Um, the other guy was hiding in a culvert and the, the Tully... We couldn't find him. I don't know. I'm not he's even with Pashtun, him. He's a Afghanis. Yeah. 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 And um, he's under the road. This is, this is like in, towards the end of the fight because that's the only reason he's still there because I was looking for this prick. <laughs> he's hiding under the road and this thing is about this one. We're watching these dudes walk down the side of the road. And is that hell, boys? And one of my dudes is like, no, 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 they're Talib, Talib, Talib. And this dude sticks a PKM under the road and goes, Brah! and lets off a, a big long burst. That's where he is. He's hiding under the road. That's where he's been the whole time. And so we, we rolled up on these dudes and sorted them out and um, dragged this guy out and he had shot the shit, lost his leg in there and then. But we got him out, TK'd it off, threw him in the back. And, and then I've been talking, we had this young yank who was XMP, who was actually really good. He ended up getting killed over there after I ended up in jail. But um, he uh, he managed to get it air support for me through this other but they were gonna they're gonna put in a mortar five a fire mission at one point with 120s and I'm, I'm sort of on the sat phone to him and I'm thinking he with sat phone to my top to their top to the fire line <laughs> let's just run with a loom mission so my guys get at least know what they're shooting at because uh, this stage is getting pretty dark um, and I was the only one who sort of had the decent gear to, to deal with that so that yeah that made off a bit easier and um, anyway so we're coming out of there and, and this same captain who ran this fob managed to get our air support I don't know what it was uh, that late in the game probably phew, was either a spec or something but they were, they were smashing up the road pretty much with, with 20 mil anyway and I just didn't even bother to knock the sump off the fucking <laughs> surf driving along the side of the road bounce hitting every fucking culvert and sump player that uh, Car died on the way back in. We got this dude into there. Um, I had like three guys who were pretty dinged up, but they're okay. But this truck driver, with a lost leg and shit, sort of like, you sort that out. And he, t- he turned up about three weeks later and he just wanted to say thank you for getting him out. I thought it was pretty cool. It's actually one of the cooler things I did. Um, but yeah, that sort of rattled a few people in the company because they, 
everybody else, oh yeah, I've done this and all that. And I'm like, man, I'm just going to the pub. And, but when people stick around, because they're telling me to leave these guys here, and they're the Afghans, who cares? I'm like, what are we doing here? You know, this is, how, how the hell are you... They, and after that, they couldn't get convoys to go out because, oh, no, no, we want the Australian to come because he, he fights. And they just would refuse to drive <laughs> because they've been out with the Macedonians and the Macedonians would go, fuck this, show the MP5s and just bail. And my guys are all running. I ran pretty heavy. I was, my gun trucks all had um, 12.7s on them. <laughs> this is don't fuck around. <laughs> I had a recallless rifle, but it was really hard to get um, ammo for it. But it was good when we had ammo. And we had AGS-17, which is probably the most fun thing I've ever had. But yeah, again, we couldn't get enough. It, we, ammo was okay to get for that, but the link, because it's got that weird-ass belt that goes in there, it was plain enough. So, yeah, after that one, I used to have to turn up sometimes to where they were staged in a convoy from, usually hungover, and just go, yeah, I'm here, and just get back in the car, because at least they think I'm there. <laughs> Where's the Australian? Oh, he's out looking for Taliban at home, passed out. Or, um, but yeah, it was getting, I was getting a bit fucking stupid, to be honest. Uh, I wouldn't have lasted too much longer. Anyway, so, because of all this, there's a few other things, that ha- issues that happened at the company, and um, I basically, yeah, fuck this, I'm out here. And to these two young American blokes I'd been training up um, took a convoy and they got hit actually inside the city gates in Kabul. And with that, and when I went out there and had a look around afterwards, the RPGs had been fired over the top of the police station. Oh no, this is this is all wrong. Why would they even use that? And so yeah, okay. So I met up with them and they had this guy who used to work for the warlord who was one of our scouts on the road and he was actually, I'd had run-ins with him before because one of the bosses at the company, he was also an XSF guy, he wasn't there long and he did some other stuff as well but he said just follow him on night just see if he actually goes out and does his shit. I went out a night off so he goes out to scout the roads and make sure there's no Taliban and he goes out and drives back to his house goes to bed. Doesn't check. Doesn't check. So he's he's telling everybody he's um, in charge of the convoy now, and and um, then I turned up there. And at that stage, everybody had heard in the company that I'd left, and they were all okay. What's going on? And um, yeah, I'd, I've been doing some other stuff during the day and the days leading up to it, not with not a lot of sleep, so I was a bit sort of ragged. And basically, it was like three. I'm watching this dude with the MVGs and he's, he's talking to the Turk and he's got his pistol out and he's muzzling him in the face. I'm just going, okay, if he doesn't want to go, tell him to put his weapons in his ID card out, outside of his, his window and drive away right now. So so the guy that was supposed to be checking, on, checking the room for Taliban mm. went, home to, went home. Yeah, yeah. You caught him out. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But that, that was sort of the internal thing. And, and I said, why are we paying this guy? He said, oh, because he works for the he works for um, House of Dean, the, the warlord guy. And we can't, we've got to have him. Because it gives us a bit of leverage when we're dealing with the cops and shit, the locals. Mm. Uh, okay. So I just did my own thing, pretty much. I did everything else that no one else wanted to do or didn't or couldn't do or were too scared to do. I did, I did some pretty good stuff. But... Um, so, yeah, this this, um, this guy's taken over the convoy. They did the same thing. Till the Americans can go home, this, this is not safe for them. 
it was bullshit because I went up there and I'm, I'm looking at the tracks. There's three guys. I think there's no fucking way. Right next to the fucking police station. Oh, um, it's not cops. And one of the fucking sets of tracks is wearing American boots. We issue American boots to Afghans. They're not the same as the police boots. So it's not the policemen. And others were just flip flops. So I'm going, okay, they're pulling this shit again. So I basically said, okay, fuck off. Go. Give us your weapons and fuck off. And he's muzzling everybody. Like everyone over went to the car and one more fucking time. I'm going to go over there and beat the shit out of him. Which is exactly what I did. And as he saw me storming over there, and I had my M4 across my chest, I flicked the MEGs up and reached the entry of the thing and the pistol comes up. So it's Alas. He saw you grabbing to fill him in and he, and he pulled, pulled the yeah, pistol out. Yeah, yeah. And I'd been running over there at that stage for a year. Um, and I got shot out a fair bit and I was a bit sort of known for not taking any shit from anyone. And so, all right, we'll crack on then because there's not a lot you can do. And um, opened the boot of the car, all the drugs. And I, Awesome. He's dead now, I took it. Yeah, he's dead, he's dead. Dead. he took four rounds straight through the chest, so point blank rounds. And, and of course, it was, it was funny afterwards the amount of statements they had, but no one actually heard it because, well, I always ran suppressors on my gear at night. And um, even with 223, it's not that loud when it's jammed into somewhere. It was, it was just sort of pop, pop, pop. But uh, yeah, so, okay. Put him in the back, let's go crack on. So we did. And then by the time we got the convoy going, it's getting light. And I'm like, fuck me, we'll get rid of this car. I'm driving around a carload of drugs and a dead body. It's not good anywhere, any country. I did. So this is, there was a con, you were protecting the convoy at the same time. Yep. I didn't realize that. Yeah, okay. now there's a convoy there. So right, and, I, and I said to them, the Yanks, I said, look, just crack on with the convoy. I'll sort this shit out. I've got to get rid of this car because it's, it's got all this fucking crap in it. And uh, when I'd gone out, my, my car that I had set up, that was my car. I had been already one of the Macedonians had grabbed it and taken it to fucking Jalalabad. So I've got one of the boss's cars and I didn't know where any of shit was in the back. I'm like, fucking God. So we pulled up. Now, right, I get everything out of the car that, that belongs to the company, that ties the, the company to this with those, that shit in the back. Leave that there. Drugs in the body. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> Here's the thing. I thought it was pretty obvious to take the body out. I was going to take that out. Oh, yeah, he fucked up and he got shot. Oh, well. But I was getting rid of the car and the drugs. That was the <laughs> that was what I was going through in my head. And I'm looking at it. Because of the mail, the Yanks, um, we used to get it, uh, given um, thermite grenades and destroy the, the mail trucks if the, the trucks got disabled. And the, the Connex was on the back. We used to put them with the doors facing against the cab so you couldn't get in there. And they were tagged anyway, so you, you couldn't really. But... Yeah, one or two thermite grenades and RPGs. We carried RPGs for the same reason, for destroying the mail. So they were allowed to have. Um, In the event that the convoy got bumped and you had this, you had yeah, of course that's not. Market, this, yeah. this, of course, that's not what happened. We used, used everything for everything, but um, yeah, we we had the gear there. So I'm looking at these thermite grenades in the back of the truck, and um, the, the the dudes who were with, which weren't my guys, are just people who worked at the office who came with me because oh, they're the only people around. Afghans. Um, mm. um, I go, right, you got everything out of the truck? Because it's daylight, we're in the middle of just near Ghazni and where it's not really cool to be fucking hanging around. And um, yeah, 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 yeah. 
All right, cool. I walk back into the car and I'm, where's the body? Oh, it's in there. <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> because, and afterwards, everyone, well, why did he didn't show any remorse? Or why didn't he? And you know as well as I do, it's, it's that junior leadership thing. I find the first thing that you don't lose your rag about anything when things don't go your own way or pear shape, whatever. You just go, all right, next option, and just crack on, which is what I did. How did they? How did they, how did they react when you killed the guy? They're laughing about it. The Afghans. Was it? I thought the guy was um, was the son of a warlord. Yeah, he was. Were they not flapping. Well, no, because they weren't from the same tribe, and they oh. didn't like him either. Okay, no. but they were the first ones that strayed around the bus afterwards. Oh yeah, no, we saw this. Yeah, so because this guy's one of the reasons this warlord worked at the company is because his connections to the NDS. The NDS got hold of me pretty fucking quick. In, um, NDS. Uh, National Directorate of Security, is that what it is? Yeah. yeah. And Secret Police, yeah. Slant, Gestapo, yeah. Slant, Arsold, or Poses, mainly. Yeah, I remember we used to, if we, we, we take, we take prisoners occasionally when I was serving, <laughs> and, and if, as soon as we knew they'd gone off the NDS, you knew you'd see them yeah. back on the ground too. They were just, just so corrupt. Yeah. They were, um, but that, that's where it got interesting because I went into a bit of a hole for a, a couple of days, but, um, a mate of mine who ran a paramedical company over there had this young guy, this young ex-ranger medic working for him, um, who won the Bronze Star in Iraq, and him and I got on extremely well. And we earlier, before this happened, we'd actually been sniffing around Blackwater for a job in Somalia. Yeah. Because of, he goes, yeah, no, so he used to work Blackwater. He goes, yeah, yeah, we'll get you in, man. It'll be awesome. We'll go, go to Somalia and get some African time up. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. So that's what we were actually planning on doing, but sort of got planned out. Anyway, so when all this happened, everyone at the company sort of dropped me a bit, surprisingly. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to get... Because they picked me up at the airport, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to get knocked here. What do you mean the picture at the airport? NDS, guys. Right. Were you flying out? Yeah, I was just, fuck this, I'm out here. Just like the next day? And it was... No, it was... Yeah, pretty much. And it was sort of... It was sort of... Um, one of those things was, do I go to Bagram or I go to, because we, we're running on white cat cards. I, I was pretty much, I had rank and everything, you know, one of those, one of the good contractor cards and I could pretty much use the system. Anyway, so I literally tossed a coin because I'm thinking, do I, do I manage, do I take the drive or I'll go there? Because I knew as soon as I was on Bagram, I'll say, there's no fucking way no one that could touch me, but it was, again, it was, I don't know, about getting there. At that point, we were near the airport and I, Toss a coin. Airport wins. Okay, let's go. Drive or fly. What was the airport? Come um, on. Come on. Yeah. Oh, yeah, got you. So, I actually got warned out by one of the Macedonian chicks um, whose husband was our, our um, well, operations manager in title, but he didn't actually do a lot. And barely speak English at the best of time, so anyway, but she could, and she was actually quite competent as a QE, so um, I got on well, and I treated most of the Macedonian women there as I would treat most women nicely, not the way they do, so of course that goes a long way. And she rings me up and tells me that he he basically sold me out to the NDS guys, and her husband did, yeah. So I'm like, yeah, right, no worries, thanks for that. But by that stage, though, they'd already had hold of me, and um. Yeah, spent the next seven years in jail. Three death sentences. I'm not sure how they were going to manage that one. But 
Three death sentences. Yeah, it's sort of how the system when, works. When they so you so when they when they when they pick you up, mm. right? How did that go down? Tell me about that. Okay, so you sort of just know, you know. You see, that I was I was talking to the cops and just sort of sort of ass hanging out. I'm like fuck, 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 fuck. But it's like yeah, just trying to be chilled, and, and then the same cops I was talking to and have a bit of a laugh with when I was going through customs. Now they're walking around, and they've got a photo of my company ID. And I'm like, ah, fuck, here we go. And you, and you sort of go, they just come, oh, you come with us. So I just rang one of my mates and just left the phone on. And I'm going, so where are you taking me? You take me back to the police station. You take me to the police station, the airport, and, and basically give you a rundown of what was going on. And this guy goes, there for me, there for me, there. So at least someone sort of knew what was going on. And uh, when I got up the thing, handcuffed, got a fucking, and of course, walking the office, the police chief in um, in the airport and, and house it in the warlord sitting in there and he's fucking fuming he's just, he's just fucking wants to get his hands on me and they cuff me straight away put the cuffs on him as soon as the cuffs are on beat the crap out of me no, <laughs> so I fucking gave me a touch up so that's awesome they're pretty good they stayed away from the face and I was like hey you're smart that's, that's good that's good um, and then they hand me over the NDS and I'm thinking oh, I'm fucked now and uh, so Casey has worked this out and he's uh, he was the one who ended up going to the Australian embassy and letting them know otherwise I would have fucking the ex-ranger the guy you called on the phone yeah he was yeah. one of them anyway and uh, he eventually found me three days later and, and as soon as as soon as the embassy started asking questions because I, I, I was at the NDS and they transferred me to the to a normal police place I'm thinking hmm okay maybe I'm not going to get killed and that was mainly because of this kid. He managed to track me. He knew once there was eyes on, I was good. But at that point, I was off the off the books, so to speak. And I was mm. the passport was already stamped that I left the country. You know, <laughs> some of the shit that could happen. And yeah, you know as well as I do, the NDS tend not to um, play games when it comes to that. They just get what they want and they kill you. Simple as that. Um, or hand you over to Taliban. Oh, that. Do a swap. Um, they hung me off a wall for most of the time. I still got like nerve damage in. What do you mean? Just cuffed to what? Yeah, cuffed, hanging like that, sort of right up. Um, and yeah, my, this hand doesn't work as quite as well as what it used to, just because of the, the radial nerve. Thing. What was the day, day like in that? So sorry. And just, this is only a couple of days. So it's a couple of days. Yeah. See, still the NDS, just yeah. like in the local local. Yeah. And then and then then they put me in the local one and basically the remand centre. Well, until I went to court, the first court, you know. I assume it was after. Shit, it was a while. Um, probably three weeks. What was what was, what was their accusation? Because obviously you killed the guy, but what was their version? Of, what was their version of the story? Their version of the story was um, pretty much I just lost lost my mind and started shooting people. That's it. <laughs> that, 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 that was how it all read, and, and apparently I, I said that too because of, because of a um, a uh, confession turned up there, and I'm like, what's this? <laughs> I did not say any of this, and I, I pretty much stuck to the guns the whole way through with the story. It's and it just it just changed anyway. Were the they were changing the story as they saw fit? Well, okay, so the one that came from it came from the uh, company. 
there was a bit of it coming out of the company, basically to protect themselves. Um, so they said they gave the version of what what happened. What did they yeah. say? What did the company say? It was same shit, essentially. You lost your mind, and yeah, pretty much. Um, so they um, and the lawyer I got that was actually the, the lawyer was on a list that was uh, actually supplied by the Australian government. And this guy, he was so dodgy. He was still asking for money, like, after we got rid of him months later. <laughs> it's so wonderful. But he, he'd turn up. The first one, he turned up. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? This is, like, the first court. And we go in there. And I'm like, someone's office like this. So it's an Afghani lawyer. Did you have any representation from the Australian Australian embassy? Yes, they did get that. I will say this: the DFAT people, the um, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, went over and above what they. Uh, a lot of it had to do with who was in power at the time. Like when it first happened, we had a um, Labor government. I think Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister then. Um, but the the staff at the embassy were really good. Of the the young girl who, who started out I think she got herself in a bit of shit because she was working a bit hard spending and the thing is the um, <laughs> pretty much 90% of the uh, security guys there were guys I'd either work with in the army work with in Iraq one of my closest friends actually ran the security gig at the embassy <laughs> he was a SAS guy he's, he's been around for a bit and uh, so every time they turned up that's how I got things done have a quick chat with the embassy and then the, the security team is like, listen, you need money sort of shit like that. Um, a lot of, I did have a lot of friends come out of the woodwork and uh, certainly cleared the wheat from the chaff in that respect, you know, you know who stands by at the end of the day. Um, eventually, we, um, yeah, so we, we do the first court and it was over in like 10 minutes and I'm like, what was that, like a prelim thing or what? No, 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 no. Cuddle, man. Yes, yes, that's it. Halas. Okay. That's it, what? I say, so yeah, I keep switching in the day. Um, so at that point, I couldn't speak much of the language, and, uh, and I said, no, yeah, you basically, that's it. That's the first court out of the way. You get sentenced to death. I'm like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> so it's sort of a bit of a, you sort of took me a day or two to sort of digest that. Oh, and so they, they tried to send me out to Polacharki and the embassy got me to send them back. When they sent me out there, because I wouldn't pay money to the guy who was at the um, at the Raman place because it was so overcrowded and you could pay money to be shifted into a decent room and all the rest of it, it was one of the biggest rules. He made sure I got sent to the punishment wing of the jail just to basically to soften you up. And, yeah, it was the first the first time around, it was pretty fucking rough. How does, that, how does that work, the punishment wing? Tell me that. It was about as bad as you can possibly imagine, but you're locked up. You're pretty much locked down 23 hours a day. But what's your sound like? It's uh, it's about as big as I am tall. Fucking hell. Square. <laughs> I think that thing was actually about 11 wide, and it was about 8 long. Feet. Yeah. So that was no, pretty... I took it, no bad. Yeah, just on the floor. Yeah. It had a squat, but that didn't work. It had had a basin, but that didn't work. You know, it was... Was um, yeah, it was different. So the first time around, I was there for about ten days and come back a bit of a fucking mess. It was, it was like being in the, in the fucking bag. <laughs> it was rough. And then um, 
after that, they sort of left me alone a bit at the remand place when I got back there. And they actually are looking after him, his government, so we better leave him alone. The second time round, um, same deal, second court, go in and come back out. But that time, my lawyer was tried to give this big statement. He basically got told to shut up by the judge. How did the second court come around then? If you, so this is like sent you to death in the first one. Yep. Did they tell you what? what how are you going to be killed? It was hanging there. That's the and, and I've actually seen them do that. They're pretty shit at it. Considering how long they've been at war, they're actually crap at killing each other, right? <laughs> You'd think they'd be better at it, but they're, what are we going to do? Oh, we'll sit there, we'll throw stones at her until she dies, bury her up to her waist in the ground, or throw rocks at her until she's dead. Yeah, that's going to work. Yeah. So, the second time, yeah, same deal. Uh, the judge was shit. whole thing was shit. Third time, same deal. And then... How far are we now to your... This this is like over the space of a year, I guess. And in the end, I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to go out. And anyway, they're, they're, I come across this bunch of Nigerians and Africans. They weren't all Nigerians. In the neck? In the neck. They were all drug runners. And um, got on pretty well with them because I'm... Um, yeah. And then when, when I got out to Polacharki, we got they put me in with them. We basically had a whole, whole floor to ourselves. And there was a couple of other foreigners in there. There was a Russian guy who was a... He was ex-military, but he went over there. He converted to Islam and went over there to fight. He was a good dude. I got on pretty well with him. There was a couple other. There was a Ukrainian electrician. He died when we were in there. bunch of Gurkhas just getting smashed. With, they'd smash Gurkhas all the time, or Nepalese all the time. with Why Passport shit. Oh, really? They just don't like them because of the whole Buddhist thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, the way things are with the companies... Everyone at that point had swifted, uh, shifted focus to Iraq because that's where the money was. So, these just weren't looking out for the guys, especially the Gurkhs that are coming through the fucking airport. Unless it was a Gurk, he'd done a few trips and knew how to handle himself like a proper Gurk when he's been in the in the British Army. But they were, they were high, like our company were just hiring Nepalese. Oh, they're Gurkhas. No, they're fucking not. He's never been in the Army. Well, he, said, he said he has been. No, he's and, and essentially they did nothing and then we had one guy who was a, a sergeant in one of the Gurkha battalions and he was, he was awesome he basically was running one of the gigs one in, in Kandahar for a long time until he had to get out because he was part, and he was the one who brought it up he said well, I still don't have a proper visa work visa and one thing I was like get the fuck out so we, we got him out through CAF um, but so yeah and, the, and these guys basically if they got in the shit well we on your Nepalese no he was a fuck Mm. which I thought was pretty shit but um, there's one guy who was in there he'd been in there for like seven years because he just refused to pay the fucking bribes or the fine he's just no I'm not going to do it mm. and he's still there <laughs> eventually he, 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 he reneged and he, he did get out did the um, sorry yep. did the when uh, when the incident happened mm. did the so there was the other the, the Afghanis there were from a different tribe but the witnesses mm. Did they, they come forward? Tried. Did they come forward? Said no. 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 There was no. No one turned up at the at the thing. There was no. They didn't call any witnesses. No, it was, it was, so it was, you see, it was basically. So an Afghan. Yeah. Afghan. Yeah. Um, and you could. You can't argue it. I mean, like I said, the second court. They basically. I went in there and tried to play the game a bit, and, and my lawyer starts giving a spiel. I didn't understand the language then. Like I said, but you basically just said, "No, shut up. Don't want to hear it. Sit down." So you don't get to say anything anyway. You know, I mean, there's no point. 
Um, <laughs> to top it off, the, the company, the only thing the company really did was send an interpreter who was a guy I belted the shit out of one night because <laughs> I came in. I, would, I was it. I was. I was actually I was out and on the road and um, oh no, sorry, no, this 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 happened another time. Someone rang me. One of the one of the call signs rang me while I was out on the piss, and they were there in a contact list. So we're trying to get all the fucking. We're trying to get all the ops room. We can't get hold of anyone. So I'll, I'll, I'll head back and see what the fuck's going on. So this guy's sitting at the desk watching porn on the fucking company computers, and the phone's like right, 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 because these guys are in contact. And he just can't be asked. He's like, oh. so you got fucking slapping. So that, that's the guy that sent me a So I'd give so, him a spear. I'd give this big long spear. Like, and he'd just say like three words, and I'm like. <laughs> The guy who sent you as your interpreter it was someone you'd beaten up in the past. Yeah, because he was a dick, you know. It's okay, this is not going well. Um, anyway, so I got, eventually, people started, the, the government was going softly, softly, and we had a change in government um, in Australia. The coalition got back in, and they're a little bit more conservative, so we had um, Julia, uh, no, sorry, Julie Bishop took over um as a foreign affairs minister, and, and she's she was pretty well known. She was awesome as a politician. She went out, would have made a great prime minister, but she sort of kept it going, I think. And the DFAT people really, really pushed. You know, at that point, when it when it changed over, that's all right. Our gloves are off, and they they actually started doing stuff like a lot of stuff behind the scenes. I will never know how much they actually did, but um, the feel of it was that they were just, they knew something was, everything was about it was bullshit. And considering every, all the staff had access to people who'd, who'd known me for 15 odd years because they were their security, they would have been asking. I, mean, I know that for a fact. Um, so they knew something wasn't right about the whole fucking thing. And eventually they push, 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 and it gets, they managed to push it all the way over. This is over the, the seven year period. Eventually got it to the, the president and I said, "Look, there's and the other the other big win I had was uh, meeting um, Kim Motley, an American lawyer, who initially gone to Afghan to help set their judicial system up. So she she knew how it was supposed to work because she was one of the Americans working for the State Department to do that. And then she worked out there's more money to be made freelancing over there as a lawyer because it was an, she was the only Western lawyer in the country. Sounds a bit lethal to me, mate." She's ballsy, man. She's scary. She, she, she just she was just driving around by herself. Yeah, I don't need security. Fuck that. She was no. She was. Um, she's half Korean, half African American. Oh, okay. And she was Miss Wisconsin at one point. Um, so she's pretty good looking, and she uses it completely to her advantage. She knows when to put it, on, turn it on, and when not to. And of course, she she used it to. And she she was involved early in the piece. When she and and then later on, for whatever reason, she pulled out, and then she came back and said, "Look, I'll, I'll do it for you for nothing. I'll get you out. I promise I'll get you out. I can't tell you when, but I will." And um, she did, and she just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. Eventually, she got me a full pardon from the president, and it was sort of yeah, go away quietly. Don't make any noise about it. Okay, that's what I did. So, took seven years to do, but. Uh, and yeah, you know, towards the end, it was it got a bit more interesting because I moved over to the um, 
max security wing where they're holding all the Taliban. Which prison is this? In Polacharki in, in Kabul. Um, so I got to meet a lot of Taliban guys and there was a couple of them that actually knew me from outside before they knew. I said, you're, you're the Australian guy. Yes. And I'd be like wearing my shirt and that and they'd go, so I don't know what you're talking about. And they'd grab me and yeah, no, that's you. Seal the end. Yeah, yeah. No, um, but um, I, met, I met one guy in there who was a Taliban mufti and he was only a fairly young guy but he spoke perfect English and he was and I learned a lot from him about how they how they work how they do things and and when you when you look at it from the Taliban's point of view it's it's not that much different to like Northern Ireland you know it's it, it is one group of people who just look just fuck off out of our country and leave us alone because that's what we want you know and then you got the AQ guys on the other side who just want to blow the world up and they're assholes and uh, then later on towards the end there's the ISIS guys coming in or the, the Daesh guys and everyone hates them they just got flogged by everybody but the Taliban guys they, they said look no one touch him he's with us leave him just leave him alone he's under our protection they're the whole oh, Pashtun Wally I guess so it works. What, what's that? Pashtun Wali is a thing that predates Islam. Oh, yeah, is this the yeah. community? Yeah. yeah. So if, on, if you invite them to your house, they're basically, you got to look after them. Interestingly yeah. enough, talking to... You, I'm going to go a beer. Yeah. Talking to um, Hakimi about that. Yeah. He was... Um, I, yeah, please. Well, sorry, I asked him because he was only—he was actually still at the Red Mosque in um, Pakistan actually, when this when the war first kicked off, and he was only—he's still in his twenties then. And he said that he said the whole thing is—he said the same thing that protects you is is um, is why we protected the Sheikh when he was here and talking about um, Osama. He said he he was good for us. He, his family gave giving us money during the war against the Russians. And, and so he, he always had he always had safe passage in the country. He said, but when when he blew up the when he attacked the Americans, he said there were there were a lot of people that weren't happy about it because they knew the Americans had come. The Americans trained our people. He said, he said my father was trained by the Americans. So it was it was interesting talking to because essentially the Taliban and Mujahideen are the same fucking guys. And you know when you look at it from their point of view, all their all their, how their religion works, all that aside, what they're actually doing is actually, you can sort of see their point. It's like, just fuck off. Everyone fuck off. This is our country. <laughs> you know, it's, but it was sort of like, when, when, when they did that, when they blew up the Twin Towers, they were like, fuck, here we go. All right then. And, and they said, look, sorry, we can't give him up. We can't do that. How, how can we? And, and you know, they tried. Actually, they didn't just go, fuck it. There was probably... To give a summer. Yeah. There's probably a bunch of young bucks going, yeah, fuck it, let them come because they just want to get in a fight and prove themselves because, again, that's an Afghan thing. But, uh, you know, the, talking, to, talking to him about it, some of the older ones there, it's like, yeah, when, when it started this, because he said, the Americans won't stop. We know they won't stop. They trained us. And so, yeah, that's it started that. And But they were... They were they had, I mean, I, well, that's where I got my first phones from with the Taliban guys. They had a sat phone in the jail and they were running ops from inside the jail. I mean, that's brilliant. They're not going to bomb this fucking place. <laughs> like, 
and you see you see the rest of the where the rest of the prisoners were living, and you see the four the Taliban guys were on. It was spotless. They get up every morning and everyone would clean the floor and they polish it and everyone it was someone's turn to cook and that. Regiment, you know. Everyone else, drug dealers, murderers, fucking rapists, all the rest of it. Just living there and fucking shit. They don't care. It's interesting. That. Mm. It's an interesting point of view to uh, to to that point of view that just you know go out of the country, leave leave us be. Uh, <clears throat> um, and you can you know you can. I can understand it. When you look at it from completely within their framework, yeah. it's it makes sense. It, that, yeah. But if you ignore everything else, like yeah. like the twin towers, like like um, like the well, the whole terrorism side of it, all the different organisations there. Yeah. And, but to hear it on a on a individual individual level, the, op, the opportunity to speak to people like mm. that on an individual level, and I'm, I'm I'm assuming you're around these people all the time, you know. Mm. And you, you become oh, mates. Yeah, well, I got on. I learned more about Islam from Hakimi, and like he, 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 he went. He made the point to explain everything, even the whole thing between the Sunni and the Shia. Explained how, why would he be? Oh, well, oh, he didn't say it out and out, but he, he basically gave me the the groundwork on how Wahhabism has taken over and why it's done with the Saudis is basically to get all the young bucks out of the country so they don't cause shit back at home. Go off jihad somewhere else, that's why. So we'll give you some money off of you. And they're not going to cause shit at home then. That's how it works. But that itself, I mean, to talk to him about the Saudis, and it's like, okay. He said, yeah, he said, they're hypocrites. He said, from the start, you know. And I'm going, but you're all a hippie. He said, yes, I went to the Red Mosque, yes. But we take their money and we, we try to be the the best Muslims we can. They're hypocrites because they used Islam as a means to take land. Instead, right, that's exactly what they did. The House of Saud basically got this weirdo wandering around the desert and said, we need a we need a priest to give us backing from a big fella to, so we can take over the whole peninsula and run Mecca and make money off that. And they went, all right. And um, yeah, fuck it, let's go. And that's, that's essentially where it all started. That's, they're, the, they're the ones who start this shit. No one else. I don't know if you know anyone who's done any work over there for the royal family. And they only usually last about a year and they come back because it's just mm. shit. What, um, what was... I was living in the... What was it like being in the prison for seven years? I'm just, I mean, like, was it... Because... Mate... Yeah, what was it like? Was it? Did you? Well, was, it, was it hard? Was it, was they yeah, hard? Was it, it was mentally? What was it like? It was. It was hardest at the start. It was hard, and try because you didn't know what which way was up, and that was you know that was rough, and it was literally you know you'd climb over the fence and you're in Kabul and you could just duck around your mate's place and you'd be out of there. Afterwards, when I got out to Polichaki, it was actually easier because you had time. You know, you weren't moving anywhere, and you go all right, and you just do what we're used to. Man, you just get into a routine and stick with it. Fuck what they're doing. Don't worry about what anyone else doing. It's just do your shit. And um, where, where I was first with the Nigerians and other foreigners, because we were sort of fenced off. And I, I never really went out. I didn't need to. I, I, Africans used to look after. I, I had mates bring stuff in for me. I'd get like a, a couple of cases of MREs every month. And um, they'd bring in a bit of fresh 
once in a while. We could get stuff at the canteen, depending on where you were, was how how good your canteen was. So when we were there, it was actually pretty good. And we had comms and you cut the TVs and shit. It was, it was all right. How violent was it? What was the violence like? Yeah, pretty fucking bad. I mean, that's, that's not real. I, I, I did, and then I said, look, I'm going to end up getting fucking killed. And that was part of the reason I stayed there, because I, I don't back down. And just, and just the random shit that used to happen, especially around Ramadan. Where it, you know, get about two weeks in, everyone gets a bit punchy because no one's eating during the day. There's no sleep. Instead of going to sleep after they've eaten at night, they just stay up and like talking shit. Mm. And they stay awake all day going, I'm so hungry. So <laughs> I'll be in there frying onions and shit. Get out of here. <laughs> so, little people losing their minds. Um, How often did you get targeted in there? or twice it didn't really happen in the, in the big one because I just kept my head down there was a few times I battered a few people and that was the end of it and then the Nigerians would come in there and they're not small people the best of times and they're, they're a bit like Kiwis in a way they're just genetically endowed they're, they don't do anything but they're fucking massive all of them and it's just yeah they don't take no shit at all but they, they're actually better at the, the politics thing like a lot of Africans are the whole tribal thing it's, they're used to that level of politics like, nah, nah, nah. And, and Nigerians Nigerians don't do any of that shit they, they always talk their way out of something they're little gangsters here nah. they're, they're like that especially out of this side they all live over the side of the road um, but they uh, it's, uh, it wasn't too bad there but it was shit and then later on we went, when we went to the high security wing that was run by a guy who had actually been trained by the English and the Americans and he's an ex-military guy as well and he was actually okay when I got there, he goes, right up, and he took everything off his DVD players, the TVs, everything. Okay, he's got phones. Hand them over. And I tell you, if you hand them over to me, I'll give them to you once every 10 days. That was the start of it. Because mm. you're foreigners, but that's the only reason. And, when, and that was like proper jail. And that's where the Taliban guys were. And I was like, fuck, okay. So, and then after a while, it sort of was every week, and then it was every couple of days, and then towards the end there, I mean, I had had a phone in my room all the whole time he was like he said you don't cause any trouble because at that point I was the only one there I was the only foreigner there and um, but yeah I got targeted and there was a bunch of gangsters in there they, they were in at one point and they let them out they bribed their way out and they, they were back in within three months they fucking kidnapped some kid and fucking killed him fucking stupid shit but they tried they tried to rape me in the yard and that was pretty fucking bad it was a good fight yeah again I wasn't paying much attention to the language then and I was I just knew something was up I got fucking king it from the side and just okay now I know what they're doing and, and it's like yeah, just had a go broke my ankle got a couple of broken ribs out of it that <laughs> fucking jumped on me as a but I did all right for myself and they backed off and then that same afternoon I went back out in the yard and trained anyway, broken ribs and I'm like, fucking hell. Just so they, no, and that's when the Taliban stepped down and said, right, anyone, next one touch the thing, we're going to cut your fucking head off. Simple as that. And I got left alone. And, the co- and then they shifted me after what the Africans eventually all got out and then um, I ended up down, the, down on my own and towards the end, I mean, I was pretty well set up. I had fucking... Sat or well, not? It was, yeah, so it was sat. I had what seventy-two channels on the TV. Had a phone. I had like a <laughs> smartphone and they had decent comms. Where was? Where was? Yeah. How big was your room in that place? Um, mm. sorry, it was probably about 
meters, uh, three by three by eight with a bathroom on it. And I was in there by myself. Yeah, it was, it was good. And I, I, I sent, at that point, I was cooking for myself um, because I was the only one in there who really knew anything about how to patch holes and people. I was always getting first aid shit in there because that always goes that You were a minute. Giving first aid to people? Yeah, because then there's no doctors there. Nothing. There's fucking nothing there. There was a doctor there, but he when he, the doctor that was out of the jail, what he did was... Once the Americans are giving him all the kit, you know, probably a million dollars worth of fucking gear in a proper clinic, stripped it, sold it in town, fucked off. Yeah, fucking after. So, so the prison was like, yeah. so you were like doctoring. <laughs> like, I'll get you a long way. People getting stabbed and shit. I'm like, fucking hell. <laughs> was, um, was bribery an option for you had to get out? Yeah, but I didn't want to go that route. You ain't fucking. But the thing is that one of the Africans sort of summed it up. A Nigerian guy who was a professional smuggler, he'd been in jail in Pakistan. So you see, the difference between paying a bribe in Afghanistan and paying a bribe in Africa, in Africa, you get a result. You pay for a result. In, in Afghanistan, you might as well burn your money. You just throw money at nothing, and then eventually something might happen. Could just take it and fuck you up. just take it. That was, yeah, that's just how they are. How close did you get to actually being, um, actually being, um, uh, uh, kill as in as in ham I don't think they were going to do it I think I just wanted to see what they see what had happened I mean once the company paid the family zebra and once you've done that you're off the fucking the company paid what um blood money okay essentially and, and it sounds like it's a bribe but it's not because that it's part of fucking Afghan law Muslim law that you have to pay an zebra to get out from under the fucking knife that's, that's it. That's how it works. Because you, you killed, because yeah, you killed the guy. His family drew money. A compensation. Yeah, essentially. So, but the, why did the company do that? Well, to sit for basically, him. basically, that it was a couple of mates had a yarn to them and put it in no, no uncertain terms. That was the way they should go because my two laptops went missing, of course. But there was a whole bunch of company emails and a bunch of other stuff on there that probably would have put them in a bit of a bad light even though they did the, the laptops went missing the cloud cloud storage wasn't really a thing there but I used to email anything I found interesting to myself and it was just kept somewhere in hot, various hotmail accounts so it was it was sort of oh shit okay um, so they they come out in my um, my sister especially working alongside my mates from the army we really got that fucking the ball rolling on that basically pressure him. Um, the, other, the other interesting part of that story is the person whose house we're sitting in right now, um, her and I had started going out. Uh, it, it wasn't really that serious at the time either, it just when I was over there. Over there and, um, Before you got Nick. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah and, and it was sort of like a comeback. And then... Um, yeah, she stuck by me for through the majority of it. I mean, it was only towards the end she just couldn't. Well, it wasn't even really towards the end, but the last two years or so, three years or so, she fucked. Basically, broke it off, but neglected to tell me she was sucked a bit. But she should have. It, it, it's all good. She did come over there and come over and see me twice while I was in there, which was fucking amazing. Oh, you got visits, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, they did. Yeah, but B, B actually flew over like in the first block. You know, go in. Went in July, 
2008. Yeah, and um, she was over, she came over end of August or November-ish, I think. She came straight over pretty much. And um, she came over again a few years later when I was at Polakarchaki and then it just got too much, I mean, having that contact. In hindsight, it was probably a bad thing. I mean, the, the having contact with something outside is great, but then there's two people in jail, not fun. And that sucks. And thinking about it now, that, that reel was fucking rough on her and I was shooting her. But so she hooked up with another guy, but when she found out, I, I came, I told her, she was one of the first people I told her I was out. I just sent her a message and when I was in Kabul. And I hung around there for a week, basically until I got my passport, my emergency passport and shit sorted out so I'd get the fuck out of there. Um, and then I came over here and saw her in February and she fucked the new guy off and, and or the guy off and she came over and met me in, in um, Thailand when I was over there. We swandered around over there for a month. How did the release come about? Huh? How did the release come about? The release. The release. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> that was, because um, they fuck with you. Afghans. Yeah, you've been there. You fucking, do you know how cruel they are as a people? It's, if, if there's something below you, you fuck with it. That's what you see you too. Oh, yeah, no, no, you're gonna get, you're gonna get out. Inshallah. The fuck? This dude, this dude, just fuck off. I, I, I was, I was, tra- I was just finished training and I'm fucking doing something. And, and this guy comes up. You gotta go. Where am I going? Alas, Buru, Australia. Yeah, Fuck off. Get away from me. Because I, I, I used to lock myself in the room. I was here by myself. I had my own padlock and shit. So they couldn't fucking get in there if they tried. And uh, no, no, no. And eventually they got this guy who spoke English, which is actually pretty cool because he'd been stabbed in a fight with some of the other prisoners, this cop. And I thought he was dead because they said, no, no, he was killed. And, like, oh. and he, he turns up there and he's in civvies and shit because he spoke pretty good English. And, he's um, a prison guard, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going, oh, fuck, I thought you were dead. And he goes, no, 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 I'm still alive. I was very sick for a while. I'm like, fuck, good to see you, man. Goes, what's, so what's going on? He says, oh, no, you're being released. Because I'd been on the phone with Kim the night before having a bit of a rant, which was good. It was how I dealt with things most of the time. I'd bring someone up and just <laughs> was a dick. And they're like, yeah, shut up, idiot. Next day, I'd be fine. So I'm going, okay. Maybe it's on. And, and then I get a mess of funny... F- text from Kim saying that's it we're done pack your bags cool so I'm throwing everything in the fucking left mustard and stuff there and it's just shit so Kim was the American lawyer yeah yeah. yeah. and my mate Ivan who was the guy who'd been running the security the XSS guy who'd been running security for the embassy for about four different companies over the years and then went fuck it and he was working for another bunch out there he had a guy who had links to the some of the the prison hierarchy so he sort of knew what was going on so I go to this office and he's there and I don't know what's going on and he goes you tell me hmm. so have a bit of a yarn and then Kim turns up and there was this other lawyer from the um, Wall Street Journal who'd been out to see me a couple of times lawyer sorry a reporter and she was still she, I, she was the only reporter I spoke to the whole time I was there basically because the first time she came come out and had a yarn and um, I said, look, I don't, I can't talk about it in here, but in here. He said, well, I'm actually doing a story on your old boss. I'd like to talk to you about that. I'm like, okay, interested. I said, well, tell you what, 
when I get out, we'll square it away. This is like a year leading up. And she goes, okay, do you need anything next time I can't see? And I'm, I said, yeah, coffee's always good. And I said, yeah, she, fuck, she's going to come here. And um, she turns up, what, two weeks later with this jar of coffee and goes, yeah, just come out for a chat. And um, didn't ask me any questions, just came out for a yarn. And she spoke perfect Farsi. Yeah, she, and, huh. and she was Italian. They had Italian... Her old man was, she was like a late child, but her old man had fought against, with the Red Brigades against the Germans in World War II. She's fucking interesting as well. We were talking about that this, that one day. Anyway, so afterwards, um, she basically signed me out because, and okay, who's representative from the embassy? Everyone's sitting there going, ah, oh, fuck, looking at each other. Just, just, just gets up, grabs a pen, and signs the release for because there's no one from the embassy there. They could because they couldn't because of the security risk at the time. They couldn't get fucking the company who took taken over the security was one of the reasons why Ivan left. And they just wouldn't move. So no, you no, couldn't no. get the embassy into the prison to sign your release papers to go. So who signed it? Jess, just an Ali, the Wall Street Journal lawyer, <laughs> reporter. <laughs> she just gets up, signs the fucking thing. I mean, keep a look at each other. Product laugh because she just did it. She didn't even bat an eyelid. So, so fuck are you? <laughs> so I caught up with her a year later in Melbourne, and we went out in the piss. It was like a good night actually. Fucking mad. Awesome, awesome reporter. Really knows her shit. Proper journo. What's her name? Uh, Justinardi. Justinardi. Yeah, she's actually getting posted over here next year. She's um, going to be up in Joburg. She's hooked up with a guy who's he's been working in Washington the last couple of years. She's been there. But um, he's getting posted to the Yankee Embassy apparently, so she's going to be in this neck of the woods. It's terrifying because she's um, <laughs> yeah, so she's a bit of a character. She's going to get herself in trouble in Africa. Actually, she she didn't get herself in trouble in Afghanistan, so she, I think she'll be right. <laughs> what happened when you got out? Where she came up? You just came up here and then so did did anyone from? Agencies want to talk to you about stuff they'd learned on the well, inside. That was, that, was that was a surprising thing. Uh, you I, must have. Got, okay, well, we, we, I went to the embassy to pick up my gear, and I f- I'm figuring they're going to they be all over me. And fuck me, I was just. And, but I think it was because I was so open with them the whole time I was in there. I mean, anything of interest that I come across, I just pass it on. I mean, what to the embassy? Yeah, yeah. Anything I heard, I mean, I could. To the point. You know, there was a couple of times when he came. He said, "Those visitors you get, are they going to be coming anytime soon?" I said, oh, "I'm not going to tell you that. You're a fucking Taliban." And he go, "Ah, yes, it is the war. This is a, this is a problem." I said, "Well, if they are, it's probably not a good idea to come tomorrow." And you walk away, and I'm right and get the fucking phone out. And yeah, ring up my thing at the embassy, or send a message that don't move. So I can sit tight. Had that sort of relationship with the guy, and I actually rang him up. And when they, they they released all those dudes, they released all the Taliban guys because Ashraf Ghani said, "Okay, you promise not to fight them, or we'll let you go." Of course you know. <laughs> and I'm going, "You're going to go back to Pakistan. You're going to be straight across the border and shooting the fuck out of the place." And they go, "Oh yes, but this is jihad. You're allowed to lie." Whatever. <laughs> well, listen, I'm seeing it at, at, at the moment they're trying to at the moment they're negotiating with it's the US coming out and they're saying it's going to be on and, and, the, and the madness is the US are saying yeah we'll, we'll, we'll pull out as long as you agree not to 
Not to come up fighting. They, they, they actually, they actually, bluff. they actually don't mind talking to the Americans. It's the fucking government they got a problem with because they they don't have a say with the government. And even though the Afghan Af- government, yeah, yep. even though Ashraf Ghani is a decent guy, and he's on the on the world stage, he's he, he's on par with a lot of a lot of other politicians. He's you know, or what leaders anyway. But it's the fact that because Afghanistan, he's got to line himself with all these fucking warlords just to get the smallest thing done. You know, I mean, him and Dostum. Dostum was being. I, I met Dostum years ago. My boss knew him from the fucking. And that guy's a. He's fucking certified. He's a nutcase. So he he basically he basically bullied his way into back into the government when I was in there. And, um, you know, he goes down, he takes all his own militia, he, he basically fucking disregards the military and all the rest of it, and he's, he's, I don't know, I can't remember his position, what he was, it was some made-up position. He goes in this one province they're having, having dramas with, with his militia, and they just go fucking ape shit on any of the Taliban they get, and putting heads on the side, all down the sides of the road and shit, just to, yeah, fuck off. And this is a guy who's, like, can walk into the president's office at any time to get advising on things. This, you know, but it's Afghanistan. That's how it is. I should say it's not just the Americans do that negotiating. It's fucking up the UK as well. It's just yeah. bullshit. It's just a just a way to get out and and, and try and and have some like, yeah, salvage. Got the salvage agreement. Thing. Yeah, but, but it's, it's going to be the same as the one with the Russians. It's going to be something worth it. It's pretty normal. No. They're going to go back to doing what they've always done. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, there was, I did talk about it in the book. But it's, a, it's a story worth mentioning. Even I, I knew a heap of Blackwater guys and dudes who were working for TRS and that who were, who were running in the early days um, with the spooks, flying in NI17s, just fucking pallets of money. Okay, and, and where do they go? It's, it's just bizarre shit. But the whole thing with money, you can give it, give God. We had this, we went to this, um, we're getting this truck company because that was part of the thing it was, it was a bit of a money spinner we, we'd go to various Afghan trucking companies and go listen if, if you want to run shit for the government for the for the Americans these are the guys that are going to be with you to protect you we can protect you and we're going to take 5% you know all the usual bullshit so we go to this guy and he had a, he had a what decent truck so I run a lot of fucking Mercedes Benzes and shit and, and they were, they were you know, second air ones from Germany and shit. But they're good, Nick. They went all fucking jingle trucked out and all the rest of it, to a degree. Um, and he's, he's going on here because the boss was like, yeah, this dude's fucking minted apparently. And I've got a good cruiser around there. And, and he's, he's there. He's got his son there with an AK. And he's some fucking nephew or cousin or whatever as well. And he's going on how rich he is. It's, it's a house. The whole house is about as big as this. Like hit the lounge room and dining room together dirt floor and he's gone on how rich he is and he's got this under your cell I'll show you I'll show you he's got underneath a, a rug covered up he's got one of those shitty ass galvanised trunks those big fucking things you see on the side remember them pack the gun whales fucking hundred dollar bills easy 1.2 1.5 in there million I <laughs> take it over what's my this guy has got this money. He's got his two wives living in and kid in the next room. His oldest son and that there. Dirt floor. All these trucks. Trucks paid for that. 
but he understands this all this cash is is leverage over people it makes him a powerful man not for what it could give him not what it give his family but for what it does for him in afghanistan and that, that's sort of where i got how how they see wealth in that country they don't see it in that because you, you know they when they get a, a, a buy stupid shit a big fucking couches that take up the whole you sort of sitting in them like this going what the fuck you know it, they don't this guy had enough money to just basically fuck off and do whatever but he chooses to keep it like that so people know he's a rich man he can do whatever he wants but he's going to live like shit his kids going to live like shit his wife's going to live like shit and it's like hey, Afghanistan and just a weird different weird, values and different yeah. wants right I mean, we're going to start we're going to finish up there but 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 Question for you. Your time, um, I don't know what your opinion was before we went in, um, regarding the Afghan campaign or Iraq or the Middle East. Did it, so you, you spent, like you said, a lot of time with Taliban. You spent a, mm. a, a very unique insight into those people. Yeah. Which is, you know, well, it's absolutely unique. Did, what's your opinion of, um, of, our, I want to say our, I mean West intervention, Middle East. Let's talk about Afghan, or we can generalize it. What's your, what's, what's your thoughts on it all? Right. I was, I was an instructor at our school in on September 11, and I watched it. Well, I was actually on leave. I just finished a platoon. I had a couple of days off. Is that Australian depot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I was going out with a British girl at the time. She was at work, and she rang, rings me up and goes, "Turn the news on." What's on? I'm like. Holy fuck, that changes things. And we had a couple of Yanks who were, there's always a ranger, um, sergeant posted to our school infantry, and there's a few other Yank positions there. So, you know, they, they were all fucking fired up, of course. I went straight to work and I was like, fuck. Um, and over the years, I've lost a lot of mates in Afghanistan, particularly. Um, all got, because a lot of, one RAR back well, from the 90s was, was a bit like how the Reggies with the, with the two two guys is just a, a direct feed, essentially. Um, and it was for, for our guys in Perth. And then the commandos started um, building capability. And when I left, a lot of my soldiers that worked under me in, in reconnaissance were, all went to two commander. Um, Fighting the Taliban, it's the wrong move because they're, they're the only, their methodology aside, they're, um, they're the only stability in the place. Everybody fucking says that. They're what, sorry? They're the only stability in the place. They're not fighting amongst themselves. They're, they're, they're together. They're, they're, it goes back to what I was saying about how they were upstairs. Regiment, everyone has a job. It's not... Wallowed over here, wallowed over. No, well, I don't like what you're doing. Fuck that. I want to take over your thing. And just fighting for the sake of fucking fighting because they don't know how to do anything else. You know? I, what drives them? Religion? Yeah, a little bit. It's an interesting thing because talking to Hakimi about it with the... Um, he's talking about the... I asked, him, I asked him about suicide bombers. And it went on the... They must have been rubbish at that. Well, it, it, was, it was interesting. It was interesting about because they had one. Guy unless they were, unless they were in training. Well, I, I sort of say, how the fuck do you get people to blow themselves up? What's the go with this? Well, the Americans have their drones. This is sort of our thing. 
And then I saw him, I saw him in there doing it. So they'd, they'd get all these drug addicts because of the opium. It was part of their fucking campaign they did. Part of the thing they did was they used opium and they were, and they were getting it out through... They'd sell it to the fucking people, very people that were fighting. Like Hasidim, that warlord who worked for our company, he was buying fucking drugs from the Taliban. They swapping them for weapons. But he's Panchiri and they're all fucking Pashtun. They fucking hate each other. But this is business. So the, the other business can go on, you know. And so Hakimi was interesting because um, they had one guy in there who's actually he's Afghan, but he was a he was a, a doctor trained in Pakistan. He's also a psychologist. I mean, he's fucking terrifying, but he was Daesh. He was he was proper fucking AQ. Sorry, not not fucking Daesh. He's Al Qaeda. He was the only one in there who actually fucking scared me a little bit because he was smart. He sent me this letter, and I just went ah. Gave it to the embassy, and they were like, holy shit, you're in here with these people. <laughs> and um, I watched this guy get in these fucking some of these kids' heads. So they get these young drug addicts in, and they basically fucking, look, we'll get you out, we'll fucking we'll bribe the way, and you go out there, and, and they fucking keep them on the gear, they give them the vest, and off they go. That's where they get them from. Half of them are fucking drug addicts, yeah. Condition vulnerable. And, and I'm saying, okay, so what, what happens when the Americans fuck off? What are you going to do with these guys? We'll take them down to the Olympic Stadium and. We're going to kill them anyway. And see, but when they blow themselves up, do they, are they really going to go, go to Allah? Oh, that's between them and Allah. It's nothing to do with me. Okay. So there's, there's a, it actually makes sense when you look at it from their point of view. It's fucking cold as fuck. It's, it's, but it works. It's, mm. they're going to kill these guys anyway. We'll use them as a weapon. Fuck it. Mm. 95% of suicide bombings in that place are drug addicts. I watched them do it in there. I watched them get in these kids' heads and they're fucking because they're on the they're on the fucking switch anyway because they're going cold turkey. No, 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 we'll get you out. We'll sort you out. They'd sort them out with gear in there. They get them out. They fucking they'd be looked after for a while. They'd, oh, your family will be looked after. I don't know if that's true or not. They're probably not. Um, here's your vest. Off you go. Yeah. When uh, I remember when I was out there the first time and it was they would they would they would. Um, they used on occasion um, disabled kids because family it's like it's culture there family don't rally them yeah. yeah see you later and that's and gone you know unfortunate but I mean no we've got to start that like something like yeah. right, you know, right you did the book yes called Seventh Circle The Seventh Circle and it's published by Alan Nunwin and it's um, out in Australia and the UK through that publisher but it's on, I've seen it on Amazon. It's yeah, a search you can get it pretty much, but yeah, it's on its third printing or something now. Yeah. I don't no, know if that's a good thing. Um, mate, thank you for talking to me. That's I right. do appreciate it's, it. It's and, uh, and it appears as though you're healthy yourself now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Sort of, Which is good. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm alive. That's all that matters. I sort of miss it sometimes, but you know, it's sort of better than sitting around over there. Mm. Um, anything you want to... Shameless plug, I know you want to mention before we put you off. No, I'm good, mate. No, I don't think so. No, no, no mate. Good. Well, well, thank you very much. it thank you for listening to the podcast please 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 if you are an iphone user or an i 
iOS device user, Apple device user, please could you leave me a review on iTunes? I really appreciate it. It really helps expose the, the podcast more to other people. And uh, like, I like it. It gives me a sense of achievement when I see people <laughs> writing nice words. However, if you want to leave a ship review, then go ahead. I'm not I'm not, I'm not. not giving you incentive to uh, lie if you don't like the podcast and leave a good one. Anyway, leave me, <laughs> leave me a review either way. Uh, <laughs> also, you can support the podcast uh, by becoming one of my patrons. Uh, go to patreon.com forward slash hour. Patreon is spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n patreon.com forward slash h-hour or on the website just hit um, become a become a patron uh, yeah thank you again to the sponsors westwindersand.co.uk if you're a service person or a veteran you can go there and get up to 20% off a new car or used car so go to westwindersand.co.uk uh, thank you to Tony the MD, ex-military. Also, thank you to Rugby for Heroes, who give me a huge amount of support with the podcast, both as a sponsor, but also in the background with, with a lot of stuff. And I really appreciate their help. Rugby for Heroes, who organise fundraising events uh, to raise money for military charities. Rugby, number four, Heroes, on social media. Rugby for Heroes, thank you. Lastly, Team Rubicon UK, disaster response charity, formed predominantly of ex-military volunteers, who again, Give me uh, a huge amount of um, not, not help. Help's the wrong word. Being a part of that organisation really uh, it gives me a lot of motivation in life, um, and so I want to thank them not only as uh, not only for supporting the podcast, but also for allowing me to be a part of that organisation. Really appreciate it as I do, as I as I know many other veterans do. So, if you're interested in becoming a grey shirt with uh, a volunteer with Team Bucon or if you're interested in donating, either or will be most welcome. Remember, they're not government-funded. They survive on public donations alone. TeamRubiconUK.org That's it. Until the next time, out. <laughs>